Reading and studying Isaiah is like having a window open into the very heart of God. And we've been learning many great things about God in this book. For example, we have certainly seen that God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But we have also seen that, yes, God is truly and absolutely holy, but nevertheless, he is also a loving and a compassionate father. He disciplines his wayward people because he must, but he does so with great patience after much waiting and with reluctance. But he delights to show mercy. While he waits and waits and waits before he chastises his people, He does not wait at all. As soon as his people turn to him and ask for mercy, he does not wait. His mercy and grace come pouring out speedily and readily and abundantly. And so we've really been uh, invited into God's inner heart as we've been studying the book of Isaiah. And of course, last week, we heard these amazing, comforting words From chapter 50, verse 4, this is the servant of the Lord. Of course, we know who that is. That's Jesus. The servant of the Lord saying, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. So we have seen over and over that especially... uh, Through and in the servant of the Lord, through Jesus Christ, we find God and we meet him to be a God who comforts his people. God who understands the afflictions and the hardship of his people, and he yearns to comfort them. And so lastly, what beautiful words are these? The servant of the Lord saying, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know not how to chastise, not how to tear people down, but that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. And this passage, chapter 51, really follows up on that and builds upon that, and it answers the question, what exactly is that word that Jesus speaks to us The word that he speaks that that sustains us when we are weary. The word that he speaks that builds us up when we are crushed and when we are broken. And we are going to focus on three uh, things that uh, Jesus says to us. And the first thing, uh, if I may so paraphrase it, is no hindrance. No hindrance. Now notice... Chapter 51, verses 1 through 3, we hear the servant of the Lord saying, listen to me. And why does he say that? He says that here because in chapter 50, verse 4, he said, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who taught me that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. And he is speaking to us the word that is going to uh, sustain and strengthen us, and that is why he says, listen to me. But notice what else he says. Listen to me, you who pursue 
righteousness, you who seek the Lord. And if you skip down to verse 3, it's, we, we read that the, for the Lord comforts Zion. And that is to say, the very people the Lord Jesus here calls you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, are the very same people who, in chapter 49, verse 14, where we read, but Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. It's the same people. Zion, the, 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 the collective of God's chosen people, in chapter 49, they said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. But here in this chapter, what does Jesus call them? He calls them, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. I think that's really important for us to keep in mind because Jesus, he knows that these people, they were living through both national and personal crises. As a nation, they were conquered, defeated, and exiled taken as captives into foreign places. Personally, they've seen many of their friends, some of their family members die. They lost their homes. They lost their livelihoods. They were living through both national and personal crises, and they were a crushed people. And sometimes we forget that sometimes crushed hearts voice despair with words that sound a lot like unbelief. But while despair and unbelief can sound similar, they are not the same thing, and Jesus knows that. Jesus knows when people are speaking from their broken, crushed hearts and when they are hard-hearted. And Jesus, he certainly heard Zion say, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. But he does not rebuke them. He does not rebuke them for unbelief, but rather he calls them, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. And why is that? Because, you see, the very struggle to hold on to God, long after many people have mocked the very idea of trusting God. The very struggle to hold on to God is actually precious to God. The struggle to cling to God when everything around you is falling apart, when others have laughed at you and given up on God and mocked God, when you still struggle that struggle is precious to God, and that struggle itself is a spiritual victory. And that's why the servant, the Lord Jesus, says to them, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Did you ever consider that in your spiritual struggles, what you are actually doing is not living out unbelief? What you're actually not doing is rebelling against the Lord, but in your very own struggles, you are pursuing righteousness. Because you see, many others have given up. They have turned their backs on God. But even the very struggle to 
cling to God's promises when it is so hard to do so. That's you pursuing righteousness, and Jesus knows that. That is to say, the servant of the Lord, he is just like his father. In the depths of his heart, you find the heart of compassion, mercy. And he knows their terrible struggles, and he speaks to sustain them. And what does he say? He says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. You know, dreams are for young people. Older people, they just become pragmatic. And when God called Abram and Sarai to follow him, to leave everything behind and follow him to the promised land, Abram and Sarah, they were already old in their 70s. And they had lived decades with the reality of their barrenness. And you can be sure, they've tried everything they knew how to to try to have a child. But what do you do after your first decade, second decade, third, fourth, maybe sixth decade into your marriage? You're still barren. At this time, they're too old and they're too pragmatic. They don't even dream anymore that they could have a child. And you see, for them, the best outcome that they could imagine is for one of Abraham's servants to become their heir. That's the best scenario that they can imagine. But God, he came to Abram and he said to him, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he says to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And what does Abram do? He doesn't scoff. He doesn't laugh. And he doesn't say, you're kidding me, right? No, but he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And now the servant says to Zion, hard-pressed, weary, broken, crushed Zion, he says, look to Abraham. Why? The servant, the Lord Jesus He's telling them that what is impossible with man is no hindrance to God. And that's why we read in verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. And what the Lord's servant is communicating and promising to Zion is that God will bring life where there is no life, and he will bring fruitfulness where there is only barrenness. So much so the wilderness will become like Eden, and joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Now remember, Zion at this point, this is a defeated nation and a crushed people And what they're struggling with is the sense that they are at the end of their road, 
and that their future is only bleak and hopeless. That's a paralyzing thing to think that you are at the end of your road, there's nothing good ahead of you, that you've exhausted all hope and avenues to, to improve your situation, and that the only future before you is darkness. That is a paralyzing, terrible situation to be in. But the servant is saying to them, do you really think that the Lord who made a nation of people out of one old barren couple, do you really think that Lord even knows the meaning of words like impossible or hopeless? That's the message here, do you see? God, he took an old barren couple and out of them created a nation of people. And when you look to Abraham... Can you still think that that God, he even knows the meaning of words like difficult, unlikely, hard, by no means. Because with that God, there is no hindrance. With that God, you can be sure that he can create life where there is no life, where there is no fruitfulness but only barrenness, he can transform it. And where Zion sees no future and no hope, God is able to do it for her. And that's why the servant says, listen to me, listen to me. And I might ask you the same thing. Are you listening? Do you really think that there's anything that God looks at and says, you know, that's, that's a little tricky. Do you really think that your God looks at anything that is ahead of you and in your life and says, boy, how am I going to make this work? No, God doesn't know the meanings of such words. There is no hindrance. Secondly, no risk. No risk. Now, I want to take you back a few chapters back to chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. And this is where God first introduced to his people this figure called the servant, the servant of the Lord. And he introduced the servant with these words in chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations, and the coastlands wait for his law. And now when we come back to this chapter, chapter 51, you realize that the very same things are once again mentioned here. Chapter 51, verse 4, For law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for light to the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. That is to say, the servant of the Lord that God introduced to his people and to us in chapter 42, it is that servant, that figure, who is speaking to us in this chapter. All that God said about the servant of the Lord in chapter 42, the speaker of chapter 51 says, it's me. 
It's me. Law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for light to the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. And if you look back again to chapter 42, you, you hear God saying this, God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, that God says to the servant, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. And there, God's power over his creation serves as both a proof and a guarantee that he is able to do what he intends to do through the servant, that is to save his people, but not only his people, but the coastlands. And that's a Hebrew idiom and expression that describes the furthest regions of the world. Nations, the coastlands, they will all find their salvation through the servant of the Lord, and God gives as the proof and a guarantee of the promise his power over the creation. Now, interestingly, this chapter 51, it builds upon that, and once again brings us to consider heavens and the earth. So verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they, they who dwell in it will die in like manner. If in chapter 42, God's absolute power and sovereignty was a proof and guarantee of his promise, here, God's absolute superiority and exalted glory over heaven and earth is the proof and the guarantee. And this is the point. Heaven and earth are two of the most enduring things from our vantage point. And you know this, don't you? Nations come and go. Cultures come and go. But heaven and earth, they are there. From our vantage point, there's nothing more enduring than the heavens and the earth. But the heavens and the earth, they serve as a foil. In other words, they serve as a lesser counterpart to the servant's work. And the servant says, but my salvation, heavens and the earth will wear out like a garment, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. That is to say, the salvation that the servant will accomplish has two notable features. First, it is forever. It is not for a season or two, but when the servant of the Lord comes and when he accomplishes our salvation, it is going to be in no way temporary or in passing. Because when the servant of the Lord comes and when Jesus comes and accomplishes our salvation, that salvation will have more staying power than the two of the most enduring things that you and I know, the heavens and the earth. That is to say, 
Once Jesus says it is done, then you and I, we have no reason to worry that we can somehow undo his finished work. And it's really an audacity that borders on blasphemy to think and to say that mankind can undo the work that Jesus pronounces and declares it is done. And it's kind of an irrationality that that boggles the description when you and I think just because you and I continue to be sinners who struggle that we can somehow undo God's gracious work of salvation. But did you listen? Heavens and the earth will pass away, but his salvation is forever. Once Jesus says, it is done, and guess what? He said it. And because he said it is done, you and I can live our lives with the full confidence that there's nothing that anyone or you and I can do to undo his finished work. His salvation is forever. So that's the first notable feature of the salvation that the servant will accomplish. The second notable feature, he says, my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. So here, the, the eternal salvation and righteousness are in, 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 uh, in, in harmony. That is to say, Jesus' saving work in no way violates God's righteousness, but rather his saving work upholds his righteousness. And of course, since we know the teachings of the New Testament, we know exactly what that means. That Jesus, he upheld God's righteousness by receiving in his body the due punishment for our sin. So God's justice is satisfied. And Jesus, furthermore, presents us to God as fully and completely righteous by standing in our place and for our sake, accomplishing all of the righteous requirements of the law. And that is why the salvation Jesus accomplishes is consistent with God's righteousness, it upholds God's righteousness, and therefore it does not face the risk of God rejecting it. Rather, the salvation that Jesus will accomplish and has accomplished is pleasing and it is fitting in God's eyes. And so, you and I, we can place our full confidence in Jesus. We can never put too much trust in him. And we do not need a backup plan. You know, it's something of a received wisdom to say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And when you're preparing for your retirement, the gospel is diversify, right? Don't put all your faith and trust in one place. That does not apply to Jesus. Because the salvation that he has accomplished is forever, 
and because his salvation upholds God's righteousness, we, we can place our full confidence in Jesus. We do not need a backup plan. We can commit our eternity to Jesus and know there is no risk, and it is secure. So that is the second thing that Jesus says to weary people. Thirdly and finally, no fear, no fear. So verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Once again, isn't it so wonderful that Jesus speaks to struggling people and he calls them, you who know righteousness, you who, in whose heart is my law. And the tenderness continues as we read and we realize that God knows, that God knows that even those who seek to follow him with sincerity experience weakness and fear. And it is always going to be that way until God subdues all kingdoms and all authorities under Jesus' feet. But until he does that, until God subdues all kingdoms and authorities under Jesus' feet, we live in a world where faith is not quickly vindicated and we live in a world where godlessness is not quickly held accountable. And so it has the effect that, that it emboldens the scoffing unbelievers and it discourages the faithful. Because in this world, until God's work is complete, faith is not quickly vindicated and wickedness is not quickly dealt with. And that causes such tension in our lives. And so how does Jesus sustain those whose lives are made hard by their faith in God? Jesus says, Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Now, Jesus knows that we, we experience fear and weakness, but he does tell us something, that fear, fear is the result of making too much of one moment and not making enough of eternity. You see, when we give too much weight to the temporary state of affairs, then the threats and the criticism from the unbelievers become overwhelming. And that's when fear creeps in. But we have to give a greater weight to what endures. Jesus says, For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them up like wool. The people that you are afraid of, they will vanish as nothing, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. And the question that you and I need to ask is, what can man do? 
the people that you are afraid of, what can they do? They quickly pass away. But Jesus, Jesus endures. His righteousness, His salvation, and His promises, that's what endure. And let such things, loved ones, let such things weigh on your heart. So I ask you, are you sustained? Jesus says, listen to me. That's the only way we are going to be sustained. Jesus says, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me. And he says, listen to me. Now, some of you young people might not even know this, but before the invention of electronic tuners, musical instruments were tuned with a tuning fork. It's a little piece of metal that, that is uh, set to vibrate at a reference pitch. So you hit it against something, you hear a note, usually uh, A, A440. And you listen to the, the, the vibration of the pitch reference, and, and you tune your instruments to that. Jesus' voice is the reference. And our hearts have to resonate at the hearing of his word. Our hearts need to be tuned to his voice. And of course, the problem is that our hearts are often, often out of tune, and there is dissonance in our music. But Jesus says, listen to me. Give attention to me. Listen to me. Do you know the voice of the one who said, it is done? Listen to him. And you will be sustained in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God full of compassion, mercy, and grace, and you comfort us this morning. Oh, Father, grant us ears that hear and make our hearts resonate at the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be so attentive to his words, his promises, and his accomplishments that our hearts will sing his praises. And so, Father, I pray, would you sustain your beloved children today, many who are weary, many who are hard-pressed, many who look to you for help. Father, I pray, hold them and lift them up in Jesus' name, for it is in his name we pray. Amen.